This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Today we're in the middle of a series called Fight For It. It's about conflict. And I think the more we kind of dive into this topic, the more we come to understand that conflict affects every area of our lives. And the texture of how we deal with it, how we navigate it, ends up having ramifications in, in every capacity, in every relationship. So next week, as we kind of wrap this series up, I'm going to give you some rules for fighting. Because many of us, if we're just honest, we don't get it right. And I believe that if we can have some ground rules in how we handle conflict, whether it be in our marriage or in our relationships with our friends, even at work, I believe that it can help us to navigate conflict in a way that that at the end, we get out of conflict what we should get out of it instead of kind of being satisfied with something that we half-heartedly want in the middle of the tension. Some of us just hate conflict. We don't want it. And because of that, because of that bent in our heart for peace, we shy away from it. But I, I just want to remind you today that the best things in life are worth fighting for. Some of you, maybe, maybe in the season of life, you might be saying, you know what, I want a better marriage. I would like to have a healthier marriage, a more loving marriage. Let me just say this. You won't have that unless you're willing to fight for it. Some of you, for the first time ever, as you kind of peek into the the grand blessing that God's given you, you just say, you know what, I want to win with money. I've never really had a plan. I've never really been faithful with the resources that we have, and I want to win. The only way that you're going to win with money, you're going to have financial success, is to fight for it. Some of you have experienced dramatic tension in the past season in your relationships with your friends, maybe even with family, and you might be saying, you know, I want healthier friendships. I want healthier relationships. But the only way you're ever going to have that is if you're willing to fight for it. The best things in life are worth fighting for. And today I'm going to share with you a, a message called the, the hills to die on. It's, it's a term that, that in, in all honesty, it comes from a, a place that we don't often communicate in our cultural vernacular. The term hills to die on is actually a military reference. It would reference kind of the topography of a battlefield. And the greatest position to occupy would be the highest position on the battlefield. It was a hill. Maybe its best kind of illustration comes from the Battle of Gettysburg in the American Civil War. The Battle of Gettysburg is a significant turning point in the American Civil War. And and, and, and both sides had amassed and allocated significant resources into that conflict. They knew it was coming. It wasn't like a battle that caught someone off guard. But the day before the battle actually really happened, what most historians would call the first day of conflict, the, the North, the U.S. Army, had taken up several occupied positions to kind of defend the city or the town of Gettysburg. And they were good, high points. But behind that, on what was known as Cemetery Hill, they created a fallback point. And in what caught them off guard, the Confederates, before the battle was supposed to start, attacked. 
And the defensive positions that they had postured prior to it uh, collapsed, and they were turned running. And all the forces amassed atop Cemetery Hill, which was just south of Gettysburg. Robert E. Lee, the commanding officer for the Confederates, issued the, the charge to take the hill if it was deemed practicable. And in what was considered the fateful decision for the entire battle, Lieutenant General Richard Uhl, who was on the ground, the commanding officer, determined that it was not safe that evening to attack the hill. They would wait until their reinforcements arrived the next day. Most historians say that had they attacked, the battle would have been over. But as over the night, the both sides resupplied, reinforcements arrived. The next two days, which are the significant days in the Battle of Gettysburg, the Confederates would lose over 25,000 men trying to take that hill. It was a hill to die on. It was the most defensive and most important position on the battlefield. Think about that in your own life right now. What are you defending? What is your blood, sweat, tears, energy, time, resources, what are they being laid down to defend? Really, to rephrase that, what are you fighting for? I think if we took an inventory of all the conflict in our lives right now, we'd find out it's pretty petty. We're arguing about who should pick up those toys or who needs to do the laundry, which direction the toilet paper should be installed. What are we going to have for dinner tonight? I know we're not the only family that's had that argument before. I have a friend who said this not too long ago. It kind of caught me off guard. The petty goes out the window when the kitchen's on fire. If the kitchen catches on fire, all of a sudden, you don't care what direction the, the toilet paper was installed. You, you don't care if someone picked up the toys. All of a sudden, it is an automatic insertion into your life of what's important. And I think sometimes, if we're honest in evaluating where we are and what we're defending, we might find that our lives are being spilled out, fighting for things that we would say don't even matter. Think about you right now. If I were to ask you what matters in your life, what matters, what really matters, what is, what is the thing that you would say, if we were going to list out priorities, these are the things that really matter. What we say, and after doing interviews and doing statistical analysis of this literally for years, I know that there are two answers that appear in almost everybody's list. The first one, if you're taking notes, this is the first thing in our notes today, is our family. Oh, family's defined differently. Some of us, when we say our family's important, it means our kids. Some of us means it's the spouse and our kids. For some of us, family's just more inclusive. It's our kids and our neighbors and our cousins. It's everybody. But for many of us, if we were asked to list out the things that are most important, in the top two or three would be our family. But because you're sitting in a seat like this on a Sunday morning, chances are that one of the top answers in your life would not just simply be your family, it would be your faith. 
I mean, we say that our faith is important. We say that. Most of us, if we listed out the top five priorities in our lives, most of us would put number one, our faith. It would be represented in things like Jesus or my church. But are we really living like those are our priorities? I mean, if we took a step back to evaluate your life, and we looked at your schedule, and we looked at your bank account. We looked at where the resources that slip through your fingers every day, if we looked at where they go, would it really be faith and family? Because I believe that honestly for most of us it wouldn't. It's what we say, but it's not what we live. Because there's stuff that gets in the way. There's stuff that gets in the way of the priorities that we set. And we say that they matter. And we, we would say that over and over. We would assert that that's exactly where my heart is. But when evaluating it, seeing where your life is, oftentimes we find out that that is not really the hill that you're dying on. Let me just draw some things I think that come up as tensions. The first thing when we're dealing with family that I most often see coming between family and its priority that it should take in our life is our family and the conflict that it has versus our career. Now, this is a big deal. And it's a big deal because of what God's doing through family in you. Because many of us do not like conflict and, and in some way we kind of subversively disconnect from it and we don't get what God's trying to produce. See, really the tension between family and our career is our ego. Because your career is a place where you go and you pursue and you give and you get the reward, but at home, there's no way to do family right and be selfish. Family can't be all about you if it's done right. And our egos get bruised and hurt when we pour ourselves into something that we don't feel is all about us. So what do we do? We withdraw and we begin to pour ourselves into something that is. And we make up lies about our value and our worth that connect to that. I can't count the times. I've sat down with a parent who's working overtime. I mean, almost every night out of the home to try to just hustle and make more money. You know, sit down and go, well, what's going on? I mean, if you're, are you struggling paying bills? And No, we, we just have birthdays coming up and summer vacation. I just want to make sure that my kids get the best. I mean, where, where in that, that paradigm are you not the best? Your presence, your attention, your time. See, the problem with family is that a career is so different than our family. See, family will always be about we 
but our career is all about me. And the tension that pushes us away is our ego. And then there's a similar tension at play with our, with our faith. There's an internal conflict that's at work derailing what we would say is often our most important priority in life. See, our faith is in constant conflict with our comfort. The Bible says that that faith is the evidence of things unseen, the the substance of things hoped for. There's nothing comfortable about that. To live in a reality that you can't see, that you only hope for. I mean, faith thrives in discomfort. But there's something about uncomfortable circumstances that you need to understand. They're not fun. They're not fun. There's none of us that like posture to have a good time when we're going to go walk through an uncomfortable season. And if we sit back and look culturally, I think if we were just to kind of have some analytics done on how we're living today, I think that what we would come to find out is that most people are literally just living to have fun. There's a difference between having a fun life and having a life that you enjoy. I don't have a problem with fun. I just think it makes a bad goal. Because fun is circumstantial. But the Bible tells us that we can have joy in all circumstances. That joy is this byproduct of our loving connection with our creator. That as we navigate and go through life, as we respond to him and and we're obedient to him, that, that joy comes with it. To enjoy life. Think about the word enjoy. It means to bring joy into life. So much so that I would tell you today that there is no reason to walk through a season of your life that you don't have joy. The book of Philippians is a book that was written, the theme of the whole book in the Bible is joy. It's joy. And it wasn't written from a palace or a meadow with rainbows and unicorns. It was written from a jail cell. I think that maybe the greatest enemy to our faith might be our fun. Again, I don't have a problem with fun. There are times that just, you know, your kids are acting right and nobody's hangry and just fun happens, right? There's nothing wrong with that moment. But maybe the greatest enemy to our faith is our fun. And just think about it. I don't have to do the, the, the gut check for you. You do it right now. If we were to analyze your time spent, to look over and aggregate the data out of your calendar and out of your expense account, your bank account, your checkbook, where are the resources in your life going? Are they going to fun or are they going to faith? Because I believe that there's many of us that when we kind of do the gut check on where we are, we'd find that there's so much more resource, time, money, energy that we're directing towards fun. And we just keep asking, I don't know why it's not that important to me. 
See, there's internal conflicts, the, that conflict of our ego and the conflict of our, our comfort that are derailing the things that we would say, this is what matters to me, but it's not reflected in the way that we live. And there are hills that are worth dying on. There are fights that are worth fighting. And those are two fights that I believe are worth fighting. Fighting to make your family a priority. Fighting to make your faith a priority. I think that those are real. But I think that if we pay attention, the problem in that isn't that we don't want them to be. It's how we deal with conflict. It's how we deal with conflict. It's not the absence or presence of conflict because it's there. It's just simply how do we deal with it? Do we open our eyes and see it for what it is? Do we lean into the tensions that it provokes or do we run from it and settle for something that seems substantial in the moment but it's not really what we want? Maybe there's a better way to just do conflict. I want to take you back to Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. This is a passage of scripture that we've anchored ourselves in throughout this series. The Apostle Paul writing the church in Ephesus says this, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind and loving to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Get rid of this bitterness and anger and rage. And instead... Be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. What I want to do is, as we kind of paint the end of this talk, I want to give you three hills when we deal with conflict, when we are engaged in a fight, three hills that are worth dying on so that we can learn how to manage conflict. But the what of conflict is always going to be there. But the how of conflict is what you hold in your grasp to change and to do better. So the first thing that I think that we can fight for that is worth fighting for, the hill worth dying on, is kindness. It's kindness. It is a fight in the middle of a conflict to choose the right attitude. The bottom shelf response is to choose to be frustrated, to choose to get angry, to become manipulative, to get angry, to do all of those things. That's the bottom shelf response. That's the easiest place to go. But it's a fight. It is an absolute knockdown internal fight to choose kindness. I don't know if you've figured this out, but you won't have a relationship where you don't experience conflict. And the way that you do conflict with someone sets a pattern for how you're going to do it in the future. Last week, if you weren't here, I talked about the ways that we derail ourselves in conflict, where we allow frustration to become anger. Anger becomes the words that we say, and then it becomes the actions that we do. It's a fight to choose to be kind. But it's a fight that pays dividends. Proverbs 11 verse 17 says, Your kindness will reward you but your cruelty 
will destroy you. Think about that practically. This is not some kind of karmic law statement that if you do good, good will happen to you. If you do bad, bad will happen to you. This is a statement of economy. This is what you create as you begin to act on your attitudes. Just think practically. Something happens in a friendship and you overreact in anger. What's going to happen next time? What's going to happen after it? Obviously, it's not going to be healthy. Your kindness will reward you. I believe that kindness is a hill worth dying on, so much so that I would say that your attitude will determine your capacity. Your attitude in the middle of conflict, your attitude when things don't go your way, your attitude with people that disappoint you, it will determine your capacity because you cannot do anything great if you can't lead people. And it's in our relationships with each other when things don't go right that we have the capacity to show kindness. And what does it do? It leverages for us a chance to continue and develop that relationship. Kindness is a hill worth dying on. Number two, grace, mercy, and love. Grace, mercy, and love. It's so important to understand that, that love isn't just some emotion. If you're in here today and you're a young person, please just listen to me. A lot of times we describe love as a feeling that you have for someone that is so vastly inadequate for understanding what love is. Love is a volitional decision that you make about somebody. I'm going to love you. I'm going to. And, and it's as if grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Grace means I give you something that you don't earn. Mercy means I withheld what I could give you out of judgment and anger. And it's almost impossible to have both of those. Not have them and have love. Love always is expressed through grace and mercy. Some of you right now, the, the, the tension that you feel, the conflict or the fight that you're in has to do with the relationship. And you just want it to be loving. And a lot of times this, this cultural understanding that love is kind of butterflies and, and rainbows and unicorns, that all of that kind of understanding of what it should be derails at some point. I just want you to know that if you're ever going to have a loving relationship, you're going to have to fight for it. It's a hill that you have to say, I am willing to die on this hill. And it involves grace and truth and how those interact as we love and give mercy. In the very beginning of the chapter that, that Jesus is introduced by John, his best friend, in John chapter 1. He describes Jesus as coming full of grace and truth. And as we open this series, I told you that, that grace without truth is meaningless. It's just enabling. Truth without grace is just mean. With that backdrop, look at what the Apostle John says in 2 John, the first chapter and the third verse, grace, mercy, and peace 
which come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us, will continue to be with us who live in truth and love. See, some of us think that there's no way for truth to exist when there's love. So we deny the truth. Some of us instead turn to the truth and become unloving. But that tension of trying to figure out whether I'm going to be truthful or loving only leads to brokenness. I would say that truth or love leaves us in pieces. But truth and love leads us to peace. The real peace that many of you long for. It's not the absence of conflict. It's just the presence of God. So, first of all, kindness is a hill worth dying on. Grace, mercy, and love. But then forgiveness. Forgiveness. I think sometimes we we think about forgiveness as if like, one day someone's done me wrong and I'm just going to wake up wanting to forget them. The stars are going to align. It's going to be time, right? I'm going to feel like it. Please hear this from me. If you're carrying the, bur- the burden of woundedness and hurt, you're never really going to feel like forgiving someone. It is always going to be a fight and a battle. Forgiving others is a fight, but it's a hill worth dying on. And choosing not to forgive means choosing to take the greatest gift you ever got, which is the forgiveness of the Father, and saying, I'm just going to hold on to this and not give it away. And I believe that that is so offensive to God. Jesus explained how it impacts our lives in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you forgive them, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's strong language. And it's a sentiment we often do not think about being given that precious gift of forgiveness because of who Jesus was to us is not a gift that simply speaks to how special you are. It's a gift that enables you to love and forgive just as he has forgiven you. That's exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 4. You remember, we just read it, that we're to forgive as God through Christ has forgiven you. Do you remember what that forgiveness looks like? See, a lot of times I think that we think about fighting our battles. Like I have to go on the offensive. Like I've got to just step into something and pick up a sword and start swinging it because it all rests on me. But it doesn't. The war has already been won. You just have to learn to live in the victory that Jesus handed you. Our victory 
Our fight comes when we surrender. There was a hill in the story of Jesus that existed right outside of town. And when he was convicted for crimes that were trumped up against who he was, sentenced to execution, Jesus walked through one of the main thoroughfares in Jerusalem carrying a cross. And as they walked to the edge of town at a hill called Golgotha, Jesus would climb that hill carrying a cross. On top of that hill, he would have nails driven into his hands. He would have already been beaten to a point that he was barely recognizable. And raised on top of that hill in surrender to the plan of redemption that his father had sent him to accomplish. Jesus would fight for you. And he would fight for your ability to not be imprisoned by an offense that you could carry for the rest of your life, but to instead to be just like him, someone who was willing to lay down his rights and to fight for forgiveness. It's a hill worth dying on. And it was a hill that he died on for you. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.